Well, I brought with me this morning a top 10 list. It's entitled, The World's Top 10 Shortest Books. The World's Top 10 Shortest Books. You might notice that my list includes a few pretend titles. Number 10, America's Most Popular Lawyers. That's just a real short volume. Number nine, different ways to spell Bob. You know, I can't bring the laugh track out if that's needed. Number eight, French Hospitality. Very, very short book. Number seven, the May 2020 Guide to Organized Sports. That's a slim volume. Number six, the Loganville Travel Guide. How about that one? Number five, everything men know about women. Number four, everything women know about men. Number three, things we know for sure about the coronavirus. That's real short. Number two, the Amish phone directory. You just got it, didn't you? And the world's number one shortest book... Pastor Sandy's jokes that are actually funny. There you have it. Yeah. You clap for the last one. These would all be very short books indeed. And speaking of short books, we have two to study today. Second and third John are the shortest books in your Bible. In the original text, both combine for less than 500 words. I call them the Lilliputian letters after the little people in Gulliver's Travels. You could also call them the fruit of the loom letters, since both are brief. There you go. (laughs) Turn with me to 2 John. John begins by introducing himself, the elder. Now understand, these letters were perhaps the last New Testament books written. And by the time he penned them, John was over 100 years old. He was the last living of the original 12 apostles. John's stature was unsurpassed within the Christian community. He was known not just as an elder, but as the elder. John was an elder with a capital E. And he writes to the elect lady and her children. Some expositors believe that the elect lady is actually a sister church. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And it's possible that this lady and her children are titles for a specific body of believers. It's more probable that John had a specific person in mind. Some have suggested that both ideas are true. That he could have been writing to a devout Christian lady whose vibrant witness had birthed a church full of spiritual children. No personal names get used here because John wrote in a time of persecution. He didn't want to help the enemies of Christianity target anyone specifically. John writes, To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And here is John's theme, love in truth. You know, 1 John told us that if we love God, we'll love our brother. But here we're told that real love never ignores the truth. God's love is always in harmony with God's truth. 
If ever our love causes us to ignore the truth, if in the name of love we tolerate or gloss over or accept a falsehood, realize we're not exhibiting the true love of God. Real love affirms and supports God's truth. And in today's can't offend, tolerant of everything, watered down world, many churches have adopted a love is supreme, unity at all costs type of mentality. To them, nothing is as important as love and peace and harmony. Apparently, they've forgotten the words of Jesus. You remember in Luke chapter 12, the Lord said, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In other words, Jesus said he would draw a line in the sand. Jesus came to confront us with the truth about God and life and us. And we're forced to make decisions that put us at odds with folks who choose the opposite. Sometimes friction erupts even within the same family. Not everyone humbles themselves and receives God's truth. It's been said, you shall know the truth, and the truth can make you mad. To insist on unity at all costs glosses over the reality of objective truth, God's truth. Once a pastor, he called the kids to the front of the church for their little children's sermon. The pastor taught that morning on unity. He said, boys and girls, God wants us all to be one. One little four-year-old shouted out, yeah, but I want to be five. The truth is, all people are not one. To suggest that Christians and Muslims and Hindus and atheists and Mormons should all just forget about their differences and love one another as brothers and sisters is ridiculous. As Christians, we should have a love for all people, and we should seek to lead them to Christ. But for us to embrace them as family is to deny the truth that saves us and defines us. Real love will never deny God's truth. And to suggest that it really doesn't matter what you believe, that doctrine is irrelevant, that all that really matters is love, is to totally be naive about what the Bible teaches. The notion that truth is irrelevant is straight from the pit of hell. Your doctrine will determine your destiny. Having love, even faith, is not enough. The real question is, can the object of your faith save you? See, just because a baby can suck a bottle, it's no guarantee he or she'll grow up healthy. It depends on the contents of that bottle. And likewise, faith alone will never save. Faith and love has to be grounded in truth. Well, John loves in truth, and not only I, he says, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Real truth is eternal. It doesn't shift from age to age or from generation to generation. 
God's truth is unaltered by popular opinion. His truth is absolute and timeless. And in verse 3, John extends his greetings to this elect lady and her children. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Grace, mercy, peace is the triplet of our treasure in Christ. Truth and love is the duo of our devotion. And then verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. Apparently, John had been in contact with a group of Christians who had been discipled by this elect lady. And he rejoices that they were doing so well. This was a credit to her and to her ministry. It's true that a person who walks in truth is more than likely a person who was weaned on truth. Her disciples here are on a good trajectory because they were straight from the start. They were grounded in God's truth from the beginning. Never underestimate a good foundation. He says, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And notice here, love is not measured by how we feel, but by how we walk. In essence, what we do. Love is a lifestyle. Real love is love in action. You know, I really love my wife. But if I really love my wife, I'll not just do what's easy or convenient for me to do. I'll love her in ways that she wants and needs to be loved. Love aims to please. And this should be our attitude toward God. Anybody can mouth the words that they love God. But a real love for God walks according to what's pleasing to Him. As John puts it, according to His commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. See, John is asserting here that nothing's changed. Since that first day they met Jesus, nothing's changed. From the outset of his ministry, the Lord taught us to love one another. And John is still trumpeting this message. Real love is expressed on God's terms, doing his will, keeping his commandments. This was the message, John says, from the very beginning. You know, theologian Richard Niebuhr, he once said, the great Christian revolutions have come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. How true. You know, we tend to look for new tactics, but it's the rediscovery of simple truths that reignites our passion. We don't need a new commandment. We need to move out of our comfort zones And put love into action. Really love. And watch it change your world. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. It was Mark Twain who wrote, A lie runs around the world while truth is putting on her shoes. In other words, bad news travels faster than good news. And this is even true in the church. Paul warned the Ephesians about being tossed 
to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of which they lie in wait to deceive. False doctrine is constantly blowing through the church. Whether it's those in John's day who denied Jesus' humanity or those today who deny His deity, we need to be on guard. Warren Wiersbe once quoted a pastor of a faithful and biblical church as saying, If I took my eyes off this work for 24 hours and stopped praying, it would be invaded before we knew it. He knew the importance of being vigilant in the cultivation of sound doctrine. Reminds me of a little boy who was asked by a Sunday school teacher if he knew how to define the term false doctrine. He thought the teacher said false doctrine. He replied, false doctrine is when a doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. And this is the same definition as the term false doctrine. It's giving wrong stuff to to the spiritually sick. And here again, John tells us how to spot the person who is false doctrine. They may be right on 95% of what they say and teach. But inevitably, they will stray on what it means, or or they'll stray when it comes to what they believe about Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the line of demarcation. And here John notes the deceivers of his day as those who do not confess that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Remember, John battled a doctrine known as Gnosticism. It was a heresy. It was a system of belief that denied Jesus' humanity. In contrast, most false teachers today deny His deity. Both are wrong. Our Lord Jesus revealed Himself as the God-man, both fully man and fully God. And then He says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. John labored for years to lay a solid foundation of right teaching in the church of his day. But he realized that foundation could be lost if it was not preserved. You know, when I look at all that God has done in our church, here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain over the years, and yet I realize that if we don't continue to serve and to support and to give and to pray, we too can lose the gains for which, from which we've worked, or for which we've worked. You know, if we just kick back and say, well, I did my time in the nursery when my kids were younger. Let someone else have a turn. Or I gave money the last project. Or I'm done with that usher thing, man. It's somebody else's time. Or I've been involved in this church. Now I just need to take a little time off. If we all pass the buck, we can lose what we've worked so long and so hard to build. You know, it's been said, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. That's why we need to own the personal part that God has called each of us to play. And then verse 9, he says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. This is why it's so crucial that you're right in your belief about Jesus. For if you're not right about Jesus, you can't be right with God. 
Jesus is the one means by which God has chosen to redeem the world to himself. Jesus is the one bridge between God and man. You miss that bridge and you won't get to God. You know, there is a bridge in China. It's the Damyang Kushan Grand Bridge. It purports to be the world's longest. It's part of the Beijing to Shanghai Highway. Its length is 540,682 feet. That's a tad more than 102 miles long. That's a big bridge. Yet it's not the longest bridge. Jesus connects heaven to earth. Jesus links God to man. He spans the enormous gulf that's been caused by our sin. Today, even though you've broken and violated God's law, you can still have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And verse 10 works all this out practically. It says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. In the first century church, traveling apostles were common. Many of the infant churches lacked adequate leadership, so men would travel from place to place to sort of fill in the gaps. The churches would put these fellows up, they'd provide for their needs, they would support their ministries. In a second century document known as the Didache, or the teaching of the twelve, instructions were given to these churches concerning these traveling apostles. Let me give you a little sample of what the Didache, how it reads. Every apostle who comes to you should be received as the Lord, but he should not remain more than one day. And if there is some necessity, a second day as well, but if he should remain for three, he is a false prophet. In other words, if the fellow stays more than the weekend without offering to pay for his upkeep, he's a freeloader. He's a deadbeat. He continues. And when the apostle departs, he should receive nothing but bread until he finds his next lodging. But if he requests money, he is a false prophet. Boy, that'd knock out a lot of people today, wouldn't it? And not everyone who speaks forth in the Spirit, in other words, who claims to speak for God, is a prophet. But only if he has the kind of behavior which the Lord approves. From his behavior, then, will the false prophet and the true prophet be known. Keep that in mind. And every prophet who in the Spirit, that is, who speaks as if by the Holy Spirit, who orders a table to be spread, shall not eat therefrom. But if he does, he is a false prophet. In other words, if it's truly God's Spirit speaking through a person, he'll order up food for the hungry, needy folks around him, not for his fat cat self. And then, and whoever says in the Spirit, give me money, do not listen to him. But if he says that it should be given for others who are in need, let no one judge him. In other words, a greedy and a lazy person in the ministry is still a greedy and a lazy person. Don't give in to his appeals, no matter how spiritual he sounds. The church needs discernment. A sincere person won't be a selfish person. It reminds me of the old maxim, treat your guest as a guest for two days. On the third day, give him a rake. In short, put him to work. 
Sounds like the Didache. This Didache was written in the second century to correct the first century's lack of discernment. Apparently, the inaugural church, the first century church, abounded in love, but at times lacked discretion. The church was in the habit of taking in everyone, true or false teacher. They were so enamored with the need to love that they failed to support the truth. John is teaching us here that a love that is not wedded to the truth is not real love. You know, it seems the problem in the early church was so prevalent that Christian charity was actually helping the heretics and perpetuating the spread of their heresies. This is why John warns in verse 11. He says, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Offer a false teacher support and you become an accomplice in their deception. You're aiding and abetting a deceiver. Say Mormon missionaries pull up to your house on their bicycles. They're all hot and sweaty. And so in the spirit of niceness, you invite them into your air conditioning. Let them take a nap and pour them a glass of lemonade. Don't do that. You're enabling a false prophet to carry on in the spread of his deception. You want to see them pooped out, ready to quit. Don't encourage them. If you see a Mormon on the side of the road with a flat tire, well, you might help him get to safety, maybe give him a ride home, but don't fix his flat and send him on his way. He'll keep peddling his heresy. There may be times to invite a Jehovah's Witness into your house and show some proper hospitality, but make sure your intention is to plant seeds of truth in their mind, not just a hot meal in their belly. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be friends to the cultists. We need to be friends of sinners if we're going to lead them to Christ. But when they actively propagate their lies, don't you help them out. That's what John's saying. One commentator writes, John warns us not to unintentionally collaborate with the enemy. Don't be mean, but when he comes to your door... Don't moisten lips that lie with your lemonade. John concludes his second letter. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. And this is why these letters are so short, so to the point. John is planning a visit where he'll end up filling in the details. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Third John begins, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Second John was written to the elect lady. Third John is addressed to a man named Gaius. And there are actually three Gaiuses mentioned in the New Testament. Acts 19 speaks of Gaius the Macedonian. Acts 20, Gaius of Derby in Galatia. And Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 1 speak of a Gaius who lived in Corinth. This Gaius, to whom John writes, could be either of the three I've mentioned or a different man altogether. We're not sure. Whoever this Gaius was, John loved him in truth. The Greek name Gaius means on earth. 
And the message that John sends to Gaius would indeed apply to all of us who are presently living out our lives on this earth, on this fallen planet. I guess you could say Third John is a letter from the elder to the earthlings. And welcome to the shortest book of the Bible. In the original language, it's 26 words shorter than 2 John. And the names of four men are mentioned in this book. John the Elder, Gaius, Demetrius, and a man who's held in not so flattering a light, a villain named Diotrephes. This is why I entitled this book after a movie from the 1980s, Three Men and a Baby. Yeah, John Gaius and Demetrius are the men, while Diotrephes, as you'll see later, is the baby. Verse 2 says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And here is a verse that has been misunderstood and misapplied And its misinterpretation has led thousands of Christians into serious error. What John intended as a simple greeting has been taken by today's prosperity teachers as a promise of perfect health and wealth for all Christians. Kenneth Copeland, Oral Roberts, even Joel Osteen have been major culprits with this erroneous teaching. Robert said that when he first ran across 3 John verse 2, he said to his wife, Evelyn, now this means we're supposed to prosper. Oral claimed his whole Christian experience grew out of his understanding of 3 John verse 2. Yet here's the problem throughout the Bible. Read Hebrews chapter 11, for example. Throughout church history, there have been countless examples of devout believers in Jesus who didn't prosper financially. And who didn't live out their days in perfect health. Yet despite their trials, they gained God's approval by faith. Godly people can be poor and they can get sick. Just like sinners, we all live in a germ-infested world. To take what John meant as a common salutation, a simple wish for health and happiness, as an ironclad doctrine is an example of shoddy Bible interpretation. Greek scholar Gordon Fee, he writes this, to extend John's wish for Gaius to refer to financial and material prosperity for all Christians of all times is totally foreign to the text. John neither intended that nor could Gaius have so understood it. Thus, it cannot be the plain meaning of the text. One of the first rules of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation is to look at the verse in its its historical and in its cultural context. Remember, a text without a context ends up a pretext. Gordon Fee refers to John's phrase in verse 2 as the standard form of greeting in a personal letter of antiquity. It was simply a hopeful and happy greeting. That's all John meant. John gets to the body of his letter in verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly... When brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Earl Weaver was the longtime manager for the Baltimore Orioles. Once Earl threw a temper tantrum in the dugout, he was actually good at doing that. 
He knocked over some water coolers and threw all the, whatever he could grab. And on the team that year, there was a born-again Christian named Pat Kelly. Well, after Weaver pitched his fit, Pat spoke up. He said, Coach, I hope you learn to walk with the Lord. The old coach wasn't very receptive. He snapped back, I hope you learn to walk with the bases loaded. Well, throughout the Bible, the Christian life is referred to as a wall. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in the Holy Spirit. We're to walk by faith. We're to walk as children of light. Our life with Christ is not a run. It's not a hop or a crawl. It's a walk. When you run, you get exhausted. When you hop, you fail to get firm footing. When you crawl, you've got no focus on what's going on around you. But when you take a walk, your attention is on the one you're with. Walking denotes a consistent and steady and forward progress. It's step by step by step. There's a gentle leading. The time spent is refreshing and rejuvenating. This is what it's like to walk with the Lord. And to walk in truth is to continue trusting and learning and applying God's truths to our everyday life. Gaius was a fellow believer who walked in the truth. John says to Gaius in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And like John, as a pastor, I too have no greater joy than to see the people under my care progressing in their walk with Jesus, getting saved, growing, learning to serve. This brings me great joy. You know, every year in September, we host a church conference, a leaders conference, And during that conference, I have scores of people that come up to me and tell me how impressed they are with the servants here at Calvary Chapel. How eager they are to show them love and to serve and to care and and to reach out. It brings me great joy. To me, this is encouragement. Like John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And then John says, Beloved You do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. And I'll never forget the first time that we studied this verse here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. We started our church as a home Bible study in 1980. We started teaching through the book of Luke. And by late 1982, we had gotten all the way through the New Testament and we had reached 3 John. It was our first journey through the Bible. For your information, now in 2020, we're on our fifth journey through the Bible. At the time, though, we were occupying an old warehouse on a temporary basis. The owner didn't even want us occupying the building. He wasn't even charging us rent. He had had mercy on us. I'd gone to him and said, hey, it's vacant. Can we just meet there until we find something else? He said that we could. Well, the weeks dragged on into months. There were few alternatives on the horizon. And that's when I read 3 John verse 6. They went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, God doesn't want his people mooching off of unbelievers. He wants us carrying our own weight, paying our own bills. As John puts it, he wants us traveling through life in a manner worthy of God. 
And I was so convicted. In occupying that warehouse without paying any rent, I felt like we were taking money from the Gentiles. We were drawing worldly support for a spiritual venture. John says it's the responsibility of God's people to pay their own freight. So the next week, I sent our landlord an unsolicited check for rent that month. I I think he didn't really think we had any money in the first place. But I guess after a few months of paying him rent, he realized that we did, and he called me up one day and he said he'd like to sign a lease. What a relief that was. I believe it was God's way of blessing our obedience. The point of the story, though, is that God wants to fund his work through his people, not secular grants. God reserves for believers in Jesus the joy of giving to his work. And then verse 8, We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Here's a beautiful principle you need to know. When you give of your time or hospitality or money or physical support or prayers, To a servant of God, you are sharing in the spiritual rewards of their labor. Over this last year and the start of 2020, you through your church have given to Christian ministries in England and Africa and Mexico. And as a result, you now share in the rewards of ministries you've never visited. And then verse 9, here he is, the infamous Diotrephes. I write to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. I read where the average American eats 68 hot dogs a year. 68 hot dogs. That's a lot of hot dogs. And of course the question is, is a hot dog a sandwich? But that's for another discussion at another time. Well, this man, Diotrephes, he didn't eat hot dogs, but boy, he was a hot dog. He was a hot dog. No one should relish being like Diotrephes. Man, I need to use a laugh track. (laughs) Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence. He loved to bask in the limelight. He wanted to be the center of attention. He liked running the show. It reminds me of a comment Woodrow Wilson said of a proud associate. He was the only man I ever knew who could strut while sitting down. This Diotrephes could strut. He loved to be in control. He was a power monger. Diotrephes knew how to manipulate and intimidate and dominate. And when he came to church, he brought this attitude with him. Diotrephes was the self-appointed sheriff in the church. He thought nothing could go on in his town, even in Jesus' name, without his approval. Lots of churches have Diotrephes. And it was the lust for this preeminence that made him jealous. He was threatened by the ministries of other believers. And this is why he refused to receive John. Verse 10 accuses Diotrephes of making vicious slurs to discredit John. The elder John states, Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words. 
He was a slanderer on top of it all. It's interesting, Bible expositor A.T. Robertson, he once wrote an article for a Southern Baptist magazine, and in it he depicted the conduct of Diotrephes. He wrote about it, but without naming Diotrephes. He just wrote about his conduct. Well, in the weeks that followed, 25 Baptist church leaders across the state wrote letters to the editor canceling their subscriptions to the magazine. They all claimed that Robertson had been pointing his finger at them. It's sad, but the church today is still plagued by diatrophies. When a church develops sort of a union boss who dictates to God and to God's people what can and can't be done, the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched. Jesus said in Matthew 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be a servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Christian leaders are to be servants, not sergeants. Disciples, not dictators. It's been said the challenge of leadership is to lead and not drive, inspire and not dominate, create respect and not fear, win support and not opposition. There's only one master, only one boss for the believer, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 12 continues Diotrephes' indictment. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Not only did Diotrephes oppose John the elder, he opposed anyone else in the church who supported John and who tried to offer him assistance. With Diotrephes, it was his way or the highway. He didn't allow for dissenting opinions. Diotrephes was an arrogant man. He was a cult leader in the making. And notice what John says at the end of verse 10. I like this. He says that when he comes, he's going to put Diotrephes in his place. Don't you wish you could have been present for that encounter? Sparks flew. The elder put his foot down. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. In other words, the knowledge of God produces a desire to obey and to walk in His commands. Instead of being a Diotrephes, we should all be like Demetrius. Verse 12. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness and know that our testimony is true. Nothing is said of Demetrius other than that he was a good example. He had a good testimony from all. Don't you hope that's said of you one day? If we contrast Demetrius with Diotrephes, he must have been a humble servant leader. He was always willing to lend a helping hand. If Diotrephes was all about putting people down, Demetrius was all about lifting people up. And then verse 13, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Ever written an email that got misinterpreted? (laughs) We all have, haven't we? 
tone and inflection and posture and even personal persona get left out of an email. And the same is true with a letter. Some messages, no matter how awkward or how unpleasant, need to be conveyed face to face. That's why John has written such a short letter, because he plans to visit them soon. And then he concludes, peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. I like that. Greet them all by name. You know, John has been reflecting on the love of Jesus. And remember what John said in his gospel about Jesus, the good shepherd. He said, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Here where John calls his readers by name, he's showing the same love for them that the Lord Jesus showed and shows. You've heard the statement, I love humanity, it's just I can't stand people. You ever heard that? That's not Jesus. He loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. That's how Jesus loves you.